Hello and welcome to another episode of the China Path podcast. James Scullin here from the Australia China Business Council. In December 2018, the Foreign Influence Transparency Scheme, or FITS, commenced with the intention to provide public and government decision makers with visibility of the nature, level, and extent of foreign influence on Australia's government and political process. The scheme introduces registration obligations for persons and entities who have arrangements with and undertake certain activities on behalf of foreign principals. Whether a person or entity is required to register depends on who the foreign principal is, the nature of the activities undertaken, the purpose for which the activities are undertaken, and in some cases whether the person has held a senior public position in Australia. To help sift through the complexities of the legislation and understand how this could practically relate to Australian firms, I spoke with Lucinda Atkinson, Assistant Secretary from the Federal Attorney General's Department. I ask her what a foreign principal is, what activities require registration under the Act, and how to determine whether someone is acting on behalf of or in accordance of the wishes of a foreign principal. We look at case studies for ministers of parliament, investors, universities, media organisations, and industry groups. We also discuss the process of registration, non-compliance, and the future of the Act. I hope you enjoy our discussion. I'm here in Melbourne with Lucinda Atkinson, uh, the Assistant Secretary from the Attorney General's Department. Lucinda, thanks a lot for dropping by to the podcast today. Thanks, James. Um, so we're here to talk about the Foreign Influence Transparency Scheme. Um, Lucinda, why is there a need for FITS and, and what's its purpose? So, James, in May of 2017, the Prime Minister asked the Attorney to undertake a review of Australia's espionage and foreign interference laws and also to consider the merits of creating a legislative regime that was based on the US's FARA, which is the Foreign Agents Registration Act. Okay. The review found that the, it might be useful to have a regulatory regime to provide transparency to the public about the sources of foreign influence in Australia. And so the Foreign Influence Transparency Scheme Act was created as a result of that review. FITS is, is quite an important and new transparency measure in Australia, and it's the first of its kind here. So basically, it relies on some really key fundamental concepts um, that if all of these concepts exist, then a person needs to register. And the, the basic concepts are a person has to be undertaking a certain type of registrable activity. Okay. They need to be doing that activity on behalf of a foreign principal and doing that activity for the purpose of influencing a federal government decision or right. process. Um, and where, where all those circumstances come together and no exemptions apply, then a person registers their activities and that's it. They can go ahead, continue their activity, undertaking uh, that on behalf of a foreign principal. They've fulfilled their obligation. Okay. So FITS really then is about providing government decision makers and the public with a level of vis visibility about who is trying to influence our decision making which countries are, are undertaking these activities and making that information available to the public. So one key point I'd make at the outset is foreign influence isn't a bad thing. Countries all around the world, including Australia, undertake activities to influence each other's decisions all the time. Right. And in Australia, it's a really healthy and important part of our democratic process. So the scheme isn't intended at all to, to stop people from undertaking those activities but really to provide a level of transparency that we haven't had to date about 
how that influence is uh, being undertaken. Right. And the other point I'd make at the outset is that FITS isn't directed at any one particular country or Mm. diaspora. It applies equally to the influencing activities of any country around the world. So the the register already includes a whole range of um, activities and people who are undertaking the activities. We have people representing the interests of countries as diverse as Senegal and Kuwait and Norway. The point is those activities are registered, that transparency is now available to the public and those activities can continue. Right. So... Obviously, influence is a, is a natural way that countries relate to each other internationally. But is, there, is, is that the, where interference and, and influence delineate? And how would you identify the difference between interference and influence? So, as I said, influence is a, a very legitimate and healthy part of interacting in a global world. Uh, and we view in influence as, as a legitimate process of trying to affect change or um, to affect the process of decision-making within each other's governments. That is a really important part of how we interact as global citizens. Sure. Uh, But interference activities, on the other hand, are activities that are done covertly, clandestinely. Uh, They they might be coercive or corrupting. uh, And they really have a detrimental effect on Australia's sovereignty. uh, and, And so they are dealt with quite separately from the activities that we are dealing with under this scheme. Okay. So, Lucinda, what what could be an activity? So, registrable activities under the Act, there are are four different types of activities that might attract registration. The first one is parliamentary lobbying, which, as the name suggests, is lobbying a member of the federal parliament. The second is general political lobbying, which would include lobbying at a broader range of people, so public servants, public um, Commonwealth statutory office holders, members of staff of MPs and people running for election in, uh, in a federal election. Then you have communications activity, which is, as it says, um, communicating information or material to a section of the public. And finally, you have disbursement activity, which is providing something of value, so money or other gifts or incentives. And I suppose the key thing is it doesn't cover every activity that might be done on behalf of a foreign principal. Mm. It's really looking at those activities that might influence a political or governmental decision or process. Okay. So someone can meet with an MP on behalf of a foreign principal and it not be for influence? I would say that would be rare. I think if you are meeting with an MP, the reason you're doing that fundamentally is to provide some level of influence over their thinking and their decision-making. I should also point out that you could be looking to influence to maintain the status quo. So you don't necessarily have to be there to persuade them to do something different. You could be there to, to tell them how great you think the current um, right. arrangements are okay. and that equally is is an influencing activity. So a, a major keyword I guess we could say of FITS is a, is a foreign principle. Who or what can be classified as a foreign principle? So I mentioned before that there are certain circumstances that have to come together in order for a person to need to register okay. um, and as you say one of those is that they have to be acting on behalf of a foreign principle and under the scheme there are four types of foreign principles. So you have foreign governments, which can be a government at any level in a foreign country, so a local or um, 
provincial government, okay. could be an authority or a, um, a position holder within a government. There are foreign political organisations uh, and then two other categories which are foreign government-related entities or foreign government-related individuals. Okay. And those two concepts are linked really to the ability of a foreign government or political organisation to exercise control or influence over that entity or individual. So what could a foreign government entity be? Is that like a like a statutory authority, something that has some some form of connection or funding from a government authority? So a foreign government related entity might be for example a company that a foreign government holds a 15% or more shareholding in. Okay. Or where that company or the entity uh, and its directors are required by law or accustomed uh, to acting at the direction of the foreign government. Okay. Um, and I suppose one one question we get a lot is where you're working for a subsidiary of a firm. Yeah. How do you tell if they are a foreign principal? Uh, and there are a number of really strict definitions in the Act which talk about things like uh, a 15% shareholding or... 15% voting power um, or the ability to appoint uh, 20% of the directors of the company. Okay. But there's also a concept of, of where the company or the entity is, is required or accustomed to act at the direction of a foreign government or political organisation. Okay. So how can one determine then that an activity is either acting on behalf or in accordance of the wishes of a foreign principal? How, how, how do you determine that? So it will depend on the circumstances, but the legislation talks about a person acting on behalf of a foreign principal if they are acting under an arrangement with a foreign principal or in the service of the foreign principal or at their direction or request or uh, under the order of that foreign principal. So a couple of key points to note, the person doesn't have to be paid by a foreign principal in order to have this type of relationship. Yeah. And a really good test is to ask whether both the person and the foreign principal would expect or intend that the person would undertake this particular type of activity. Okay. And if the answer is yes, that they both had that expectation that, that this activity might be undertaken, then we would say that person is acting on behalf of a foreign principal. And I suppose the other point I'd make is there will often be cases where a person has their own motivations for undertaking a particular activity. Right. Either it's a personal uh, wish or it's in the interest of their own business, for example. The question comes back to whether or not, in addition to their own motivation, there is some level of expectation that between them and a foreign principal that they will do that activity. So if that exists, then they might need to register, even though it's also in their interests. So for companies that may find that they have to prove whether their contact has been on behalf of a foreign principal, do you see this as uh, eventuating in a, a lot of legal cases with firms having to justify how they have conducted themselves with relation to their foreign principal relations? I wouldn't anticipate in, in the early stages that's uh, going to be a, a focus. I think it really is a matter at this point the scheme is so young uh, okay. that our aim is to help people understand generally how it might apply. Right, yeah. And it really is up to each individual entity or person to determine for themselves whether or not these circumstances okay. exist. 
Now, I, I know the government's certainly been at pains to express that the act is non-discriminatory, but you know, as the Australia-China Business Council, you know, like we do have an interest in relations with uh, the People's Republic of China, where there are 90 million Communist Party members in China. Um, and so a lot of them, you know, may be living in Australia as, you know, permanent residents or Australian citizens. How are they seen as under the Act? So the first thing I'd say is that this scheme applies regardless of which country we're talking about. Mm. But obviously for your listeners, uh, being the Australia-China Business Council, there is that interest uh, in, in the Communist Party. So I'll use that as an example, but I would be at pains to say that it doesn't matter whether it's the China Communist Party or the American Democrats. Sure. Um, any foreign political organisation would be treated the same. So second, in this case, we'd look at whether or not there was that meeting of minds between the person and the party that they are a member of. Okay. So has the party directed or requested the person to undertake this particular activity? Okay. And is there that shared expectation that they would do that type of work. Right. So, so membership in itself does not require registration? No, okay. absolutely not. And I think it is. it comes back to the circumstances that we talked about before. There has to be that meeting of the minds between the party and the person that they would do a particular activity okay. and that the activity would be for the purpose of influencing a federal government decision in Australia. Okay. So, Lucinda, what about a former politician who's, who's not an MP anymore? Do they need to register? So, James, uh, the scheme has more extensive obligations for former cabinet members mm. and former members of parliament and also what we call recent designated position holders, so people who've held really senior positions in the Commonwealth Public Service or as members of political staff. The, the short answer is that if you were a former cabinet minister, for example, and you are engaged by a foreign principal, you would need to register whether or not you're doing a registrable activity. So you have a, a held to a higher standard, essentially, of accountability and transparency than, than your ordinary person. Okay. And that is, for cabinet members, that's a lifetime obligation. So... Uh, if you're working for a foreign principal in any sphere and whether or not that's in Australia, you, you need to register that activity. If you're a former, a recent designated position holder, those higher standards apply for 15 years after you've left that position. Uh, but for former cabinet members, it's for life. That's right. And that's exclusively for federal parliament? That's right, yes. So it is only applying to people who've been a cabinet member of the Commonwealth cabinet. Um, now, before we go on to some um, case studies, um, are there any exemptions under the Act? There are quite a few exemptions under the Act. Uh, and, James, we have a, a website which uh, your listeners should definitely have a look at, which has a range of information on it, including Fact Sheet 7, which talks about the exemption categories. Yep. Uh, some of the examples of exemptions that apply, for example, are in relation to where a person's undertaking an activity for humanitarian purposes or charitable purposes, where a person is an employee of a foreign government or a foreign government-related entity and they're acting in the capacity as an employee of that organisation. Okay. And also there are exemptions, for example, for people who are acting in certain professional capacities. So, for example, a lawyer who is providing legal advice or legal representation in a proceeding for a client. So what's the difference between an employee for a foreign government entity and a foreign government entity? A person who's an employee of a foreign government-related entity who is 
acting in their capacity as an employee of that company and the activity that they're undertaking is in the commercial business interests of that company, then they are covered by an exemption specifically. And the concept is that as an employee, I presumably am fronting up with my business card and saying, here, I am an employee of this foreign government-related entity. I'm doing the job that I'm employed to do. And that already has inherently the level of transparency that's required. Right, okay. What about an organisation that's a a non-for-profit bilateral business chamber like the ACBC? So one of the other exemptions that applies is in relation to industry representative bodies. So that is an association that's formed in Australia. It has members from Australia as well as potentially from overseas. And where uh, that organisation is um, undertaking an activity which is to represent the, the interests of their members generally or a group of their members, then they would be covered by that industry representative exemption. But it always depends on the circumstances. So if, for example, ACBC or another industry representative group is undertaking a particular activity just for one of their members who is a foreign principal under the Act, right. then ACBC would need to register that activity. Okay. So if ACBC was running an event um, and had partnered with a, a Chinese government entity to, to run the event, perhaps directed towards um, an industry sector, let's say agriculture, would, would that be an exemption because ACBC is acting on behalf of the Australian agriculture industry? So, James, I think it depends. And again, we would look at those basic circumstances that have to come together in order to require registration. So if we look at them in, in, in their essence, you'd need to see whether there was a registrable activity being undertaken and if it's a forum where uh, ACBC is promoting the interests of a particular foreign principal who's your member over and above the interests of the other members, right. um, then, then that could be a registrable activity on behalf of a foreign principal and with the purpose of influencing a government decision. Yeah. The question is really would really come down to whether or not it was ACBC holding the event on behalf of all of its members or a range of its members, which might include a foreign principal. Right. Uh, if it is that, then probably the industry exemption applies. Okay. Uh, providing that it's clear to everybody that um, you're doing that on behalf of a group of your members rather than one particular okay. member. Okay, okay. Now, what about state government entities? Does does FITS apply in the same way to state government entities as it does to federal government entities within Australia? FITS only applies to activities that are aimed at federal government decisions or processes. Right, okay. So, for example, if somebody lobbies the New South Wales Department of Education on behalf of a foreign principal, that's not a registrable activity under the scheme. Okay. But I would note that uh, all of the state political parties are also registered at the federal level. So that means that if you are lobbying a political party, Mm. it doesn't matter whether it's the state chapter or the Commonwealth version. Right, Uh, That is That is caught within the concept too. So let's say someone is simply trying to organise a meeting on behalf of a foreign principal with a Minister of Parliament. Does, Does that require registration? The basic answer is no. We would make a delineation between that administrative process of just setting up a meeting and the actual act of being at the meeting and making representations. Mm. I should also say lots of people um, have asked us about 
if I organise meeting for a delegation and I accompany them to the meeting but I don't say anything, um, do I need to register? Mm. Um, and the simple answer is no. There needs to be – you need to be actively involved in uh, the actual activity of influencing or lobbying. Uh, so if I were a consultant and my role on behalf of a foreign principal is to engage with ministers and I go and I meet with them and I put forward a case – in the interests of my client, then yes, that's a registrable activity. So we have an election coming up this year. What if someone was to attend a, a, a campaign rally of someone who's not yet a minister, um, but they are representing a foreign principal and they have a discussion with that candidate that may be seen as influencing? Um, how, how would that go under, under registration of the Act? So I think that is the type of activity that we would be looking at, at closely and again we go back to the the four basic circumstances that we are looking for so is there a registrable activity uh, and lobbying a, a, an election candidate is part of a general political lobbying category okay is it done on behalf of a foreign principal so is there that meeting of minds between me and the um the foreign principal that i will go and have this discussion and is it for the purpose of influencing a a federal government decisional process. If I'm there to talk to the political candidate about their policies and try and influence them about their policies, then yes, I think those would apply. Okay. Um, now, what about investment? A lot of foreign entities need to go through the Foreign Investment Review Board to have their foreign overseas investments approved in Australia. What if a, a consultant or a business was acting on behalf of, let's say, a state-owned enterprise that was looking to invest in um, Australia in some form, and that consultant was looking to speak to FERB prior to applying for the investment to, to maybe gauge how their application would, would go under under FERB. Does, does that require registration? It might, and again, it will depend on the circumstances. So if I were a consultant, I'm representing a foreign principal, the question really comes down to whether or not I am engaging in any kind of activity that is intended to influence a decision of FERB. Okay. So if I'm merely ringing up to find out about the process and to check that I filled out all the right forms and I've provided all of the information, that's probably not a registrable activity because I'm not trying to change anybody's decision or mm. influence their decision. But if I'm ringing up to say, have you got everything you need you know, this is a really important application. Can What can I do to help, you know, the process along? Right. That is probably hitting the mark of, of trying to influence a decision. Okay. Uh, and that would need to be registered. So often in that case, I would assume that the consultant would, you know, most likely be a lawyer. Do, do lawyers have a similar exemption? So there is an exemption for people providing legal advice or legal representation to a client in a proceeding. Okay. I think in this case... Again, it will depend on whether or not that act of ringing up and trying to talk to an official about how to advance an application, it will really come down to whether or not that is actually legal advice. I think probably not, even though it's a lawyer, just because I, I have a law degree doesn't kind of automatically exempt me from, from the act. Right. Okay. Now, what about um, the, the education sector? So let's say um, an Australian university department was looking at uh, a, some research collaboration with um, a university that was state-owned overseas. Um, how would that collaboration be registered or would it not need to be? 
So again, it depends, and <laughs> okay. it will just depend on on going through those uh, same questions for for any example that we we come across. Okay. Um, so the question would be: Are they undertaking a registrable activity? So for example, lots of academics uh, present papers or they write articles uh, to with the purpose of influencing government um, policies and decisions. And the question would come down to circumstances about the agreement between the two collaborating universities. Is there an expectation that the products of the collaboration would be used in that way to influence a government decision? Okay. Um, And then is there that shared understanding between the two collaborating entities that that is the purpose of of these activities? So, I mean, one real-life example, the Australian Academy of Science has registered 10 collaborations already with a wide variety of of foreign principles, and that's on the basis that their collaborations involve engagement with the federal government, either through direct liaison, position papers, submissions and the like, and that process of engagement is really intended to influence government outcomes here. Okay. Well, what about at the early stage of a collaboration between two universities? So if two university research departments maybe signed an MOU to collaborate in the future, would would that require registration? Again, it will depend on the circumstances. (laughs) I think if if the MOU is specific and it says, you know, we're going to collaborate and part of the objective of the collaboration is ultimately to influence change or or to maintain the status quo in an Australian government context, then yes, that's probably a registrable arrangement. We would encourage organisations to really think about that when they're setting up their MOUs. Once the arrangement is registered, that's it. They can continue to, to do their excellent work. It is really just about providing that upfront um, acknowledgement of, of what they're setting out to do. Okay. So, again, um, a, a specific question to the Australia-China Business Council. So what about Confucius Institute? So Confucius Institutes often have um, joint ventures with Australian universities and Confucius Institutes provide a lot of language education for Australian communities. Um, are they required to register under the Act? I think in this case we'd be looking at the question of whether or not the activities that are being undertaken have that influencing purpose. So is the purpose of a particular activity to influence the Australian government's processes or decisions or to influence the broader Australian public in relation to a political issue? Okay. So it again, it will come down to the individual circumstances of whether an activity is for that purpose and whether there's a shared understanding about uh, that activity being undertaken. But I guess it's a it, it's a tricky one because I, when you're studying a, a foreign language, whether it's Chinese or German or, or, or French or Arabic, you are, I guess, getting that, that worldview from, from, from that language. How's that seen under the Act where, I guess, as you learn Chinese, you're you know, perhaps learning about the, the worldview of that country? If a person is attending Chinese language classes through a Confucius Institute, I think on the face of it, there's there's no registrable activity there in terms of the Confucius Institute providing that sort of general language training, general yep. uh, training about um, or education about China and its systems of government and, and that kind of thing. And, and it's the same thing that Goethe Institute or Allianz Francais would Absolutely. Be doing. So I think... Again, it's a really important part of our multicultural society that we can have the opportunity to learn and and understand each other's cultures. I think 
the question will come down to other particular activities which might have more of that political element about influencing people's views about particular policies or decisions at the federal government level. Um, and if there were those activities being undertaken by the Confucius Institute and that was being done on behalf of a, a foreign principal, so in that case the um, Chinese government, then we would be looking at whether or not that is a registrable activity. So one final example, um, what about a communications activity? Let's say um, an Australian media publication had an arrangement with um, a foreign-owned uh, newspaper and included segments of that foreign-owned newspaper in their Australian publication, would that be required to register? So we said before that a, a communications activity is providing informational material to the public or a section of the public. In this case, we'd be looking at is it content that the, the Australian media outlet has produced itself? And if that's the case, then we would look at whether or not it's doing that on behalf of a foreign principal. Yep. But there is uh, an exception within the Act that talks about a media outlet that is merely disseminating the material that another entity has produced. Right. So uh, a good example is SBS often carries news stories from the BBC World Service and BBC World Service would be a foreign principal under the Act. Okay. So the, the exception works in the way that if it's very clear on the face of that um, broadcast that it's a BBC product, so there's a big BBC logo on it, then it's clear to everybody that it's not SBS content and that it is BBC content then no registration is required. Oh, okay, because it's already explicit in the way it's being expressed. Exactly. Okay. But if, for example, um, a local media, a local newspaper does its own reporting on a particular matter mm. uh, and does that because its parent company uh, offshore, which might be foreign principal, has asked them to do a particular report, yeah. then that is probably a registrable activity. Okay. The other question that we get a lot is, well, you know, in a world of social media, what happens if I share an article online? So I see a, a post from a state-owned media company offshore and I share it with my friends on Facebook, for okay. example. Yeah. Again, the same principle would apply. If it's obvious that it is somebody else's content and you yourself have not produced it, then you're disseminating that product and, and you don't need to register if you forward it on and you provide some commentary of your own um, that is um, being supportive of, of whatever's in the article and you are doing that because a foreign principal has asked you to do that, to, to kind of promote that particular viewpoint, okay. then you might need to register. And the other thing to note with communications activities is if they are registrable, uh, you also need to include a disclosure that's, that identifies the foreign principal on whose behalf you're acting. Okay. So let's say if I'm on LinkedIn and I'm sharing an article from a, from a foreign media organisation and I'm saying that, you know, perhaps the Australian government need to kind of pay attention to this issue, as a person on social media or on LinkedIn, would, would I need to register by doing that? If, if you're doing that of your own volition and you think it's a great idea and that's why you're sharing it, okay. then no. Right. If, however, you have been engaged by a foreign principal and one of the things you're engaged to do is to promote certain um, viewpoints via your social media, then yes, you would need to register that activity and you'd need to include the disclosure in your post. Okay. All right. Well, what's the actual process of, of registering? What, what does it take for, for someone to register? 
So it's pretty straightforward. Uh, if people need to register, they go to our website, which is www.ag.gov.au forward slash transparency, and they follow the links on that registration page. You will be asked to complete a short questionnaire, which is just there to help people determine if they need to register. And if they do, then they'll create an account and then they'll provide some details about themselves, the foreign principal who they're acting for, um, the arrangement between themselves and the foreign principal and the activities that they're doing. And I'd say at this point too, if anybody has any difficulties or questions, um, we also have a small team within the department who are very happy to help. You can either contact them through that website, there's an email address or uh, a phone number, and we also have interpreter services available if, if people need that assistance. Mm. So why, why wouldn't a firm register? Look, I suppose, James, there aren't really any downsides to registering. Once you've registered your activity, you can go ahead and do that activity. These are, as I said before, completely legitimate and important act activities in our democratic process. So yeah. um, it's a pretty minor uh, expenditure of time. It doesn't cost any money to register. There are some record-keeping obligations, but they're not uh, overly burdensome. Um, and I think once people become familiar with the process, I think it, it, it's a pretty simple and straightforward process. Because I guess a lot of the examples that we've talked about today, it's not that those activities should not be conducted within Australia. It's just that the federal government is trying to bring transparency to these acts that's, as they're being conducted. That's absolutely right. And I think, you know, we've had a at the federal level a, a register of um, professional lobbyists for years now and this is really an extension of, of that concept uh, to a broader range of activities that might influence decision-making processes. So as you say there's absolutely no inference at all that people um, shouldn't undertake these activities it's really just to provide that extra level of transparency. Okay. Now, uh, with today being the 21st of March, I had a look early this morning at the register um, and I saw that there's currently 23 separate registrants. Um, how many entities do you see signing up? So, I, uh, of course, you can't give me a finger, but do you think it's something that's in the hundreds, in the thousands? Like, what, what does the registry look like going forward? Look, it is hard to say, uh, but I think... For example, if we look at the lobbying register, there are a few hundred registrants on that already. Okay. Um, and that's been in place for several years. So we're in the early stages and we would anticipate that as the scheme is becomes better understood um, and it becomes a normal part of people doing business, that we will see a, a lot more registrants. I think the really interesting thing that even though the scheme is, is quite new, um, as you say, we've got 23 different registrants they're acting on behalf of 37 different foreign principles. Okay. And those foreign principles are associated with 20 different countries. So we're already seeing that really this is a global world we're living in and that's really being played out in the registrations that we've seen already. Okay. Um, and what about non-compliance? What, what, what happens if someone doesn't register and they're seen as um, acting on behalf of a foreign principle? So the Act does contain some penalties for failing to comply with your obligations. So if you need to register uh, and you know that and you don't register, there are um, some criminal penalties that could be applied if that's found to be the case by a court. But the, the thing I'd say is that the penalties aren't 
for undertaking these activities. As we said before, they're completely lawful and legitimate activities. Really the penalties are there to ensure that people aren't trying to circumvent what the parliament has decided is is necessary in terms of transparency. So um, the scheme is there to, to encourage openness and transparency about the activities that are being undertaken and really the penalties are there to deter people from trying to circumvent that. Okay. Um, and so what's the current status of FITS? So the, the grace period ended on, on March 10. Do you see the legislation evolving more going into the future? So as you say, the grace period finished on the 10th of March and, and basically that means that whenever anybody undertakes one of these activities or enters in a, into an arrangement to do the activity, then they have 14 days from that time in which to register. At this stage, there's no kind of... Obviously, being a very new scheme, there's not a plan to do any large-scale changes, but there will be a review into the operation of the scheme and that's required as part of the Act. And the review will be done in time for the third anniversary of the Act. So over the next few years, we'll see how it works. Um, And obviously, at that point, there'll be further consultation with people who've engaged with the scheme to see how it's working. Mm, fantastic. Okay, well, Lucinda, it's, it's, it's certainly quite complex, but we really appreciate you coming on the podcast to help make sense of the Act. Um, what can businesses do to, to, to learn more in the future? So you've mentioned the, the website. What should a business maybe think about as to, as to whether they should be preparing and, and, and acting upon the Act? So... As I said, the the website has a whole bunch of information there um, and and fact sheets and and that kind of stuff, which hopefully will help people come to grips with with some of the complexity in the scheme. The team is more than happy to answer specific questions and we're finding that um, we're getting a lot of inquiries with people coming with their particular scenarios and we're more than happy to help people work through those scenarios. So I'd really encourage people to look at the website, check out the fact sheets, get in touch with with the team who can provide you with some help to to navigate the scheme. And hopefully this will just become a normal part of doing business. We'll see, hopefully, that does provide that transparency and openness Mm. that it's designed to provide. Okay, excellent. Okay, well, Lucinda Atkinson, thanks a lot for dropping by today. Thanks, James. My thanks to Lucinda and Jean-Claire from the Attorney-General's Department, and I hope this has provided some clarity over how FITS may relate to Australian or Chinese firms. As mentioned by Lucinda, the Attorney-General's Department is at the ready to help people understand how the Act may relate to their specific circumstances. So for more info, you can visit www.ag.gov.au forward slash transparency or call 026141 We'll also provide links to the Act on this episode's show notes that you can find at acbc.com.au forward slash podcasts, where you can also access any of our previous podcast episodes. If you found this podcast helpful or relevant, please leave a review on the iTunes podcast page and feel free to pass on to a colleague, client or friend who may also be interested in this or any other of our Australia China podcast episodes. Thanks again to the Australia China Council for their generous support of the podcast. That's it for this episode. Until next time, Zai Jian. <laughs>